I selfishly chose one day in June of 2019 to end my life. That was my choice because I felt worthless. I felt like I didn't have a purpose. I felt lost, aimless. That afternoon, I drove, sped up to 100 and 130 kilometers an hour, and I was heading directly towards this pole at the end of the road. Over the past few years, my life has completely changed. I've built one of Australia's most successful e-commerce startups, Happy Skin Co., generating over 10 million per year in sales and disrupting a billion dollar industry in the process. I've now turned my passion for growth and personal development to bring you these honest and eye-opening conversations. This isn't just a business podcast. This is about the person underneath. This is about the journey. This is what it's really like. I'll be interviewing guests from all walks of life, each with their own unique perspectives and experiences, from the hardest day of their life to the biggest accomplishments and everything in between. My name is Dylan Mullen, and this is Life, Money, and Love. All right, so we're back again. So with Jay Phantom today, uh, this one, Jay has honestly almost an unbelievable story. He's obviously most famous for being the host of a top four podcast, The Story Box. Uh, and I just want to read out before we start the very enviable list of guests that Jay's <laughs> been able to interview in only, what, two, three years of the podcast? Yeah, two years, man. So let me read out some of these names. Tony Robbins, Matthew McConaughey, Josh Peck, Grant Cardone, Robert Kiyosaki, Mark Manson, Tom and Lisa Bilyeu, Aubrey Marcus, Sugar Ray Leonard, Nicole, uh, Dr. Nicola Pereira, the holistic psychologist, just to name a few. Now, fast forward, you know, however, three, four years, over 4 million downloads, 600 episodes recorded. I can't believe how quick you've been able to grow this. And I do want to get into that podcast story and how you've been able to build such an amazing platform to share stories. But first, I want to start with who Jay is, right? Who Jay is as a person. And I want to go back because, you've, as I said, you've had almost an unbelievable life story, like the amount of adversity you've had to overcome. And before we get into it, you have a new book coming out in September, right? Yep. And I want to read you a, a, a summary of a book that I, like a, that I saw when I was looking at your book on Amazon because I think it perfectly sums up what this conversation is going to be. So your book's called, is it still called The Path of an Eagle? How to so Overcome is, and Lead After Being Knocked Down. Now this is a little, like the little summary I read and I thought this, is, this sums up Jay's life perfectly. So it says, a heartfelt, emotive and hopeful account of one man's awe-inspiring journey to overcome the seemingly impossible. Near-death experiences, abuse of all kinds, depression, anxiety, addictions, and eating disorders. And you're only in your mid-20s. So it's an incredible story. Um, and it starts at Westmead Hospital. You were born in Western <laughs> Sydney. Uh, and it didn't take long for the hits to start coming for a young Jay. Can you talk about your early life and the, the health issues that, that came pretty early on? Sure, man. Firstly, I'm not famous, <laughs> but thank you so much for, for saying that and, and reading out. It's kind of like a little bit awe inspiring mm. to, to listen to all the things that have happened over the years. Yeah. Um, appreciate you having me on, man. But yeah, the early life, early Jay started out struggling. So I was born with kidney reflux mm. and scar tissue on the right side of my kidney. And pretty much from there, like there's a, a myriad of issues that come as a result of that. With reflux, there's a lot of pain and I was just in and out of hospital growing up. So yeah. like hospital was kind of like my second home, Westmead Children's Hospital more specifically. Um, and then at two years old, so uh, we ended up getting, um, uh, I think it was salmonella food poisoning, which almost ended my life. 
Uh, it's a crazy story. So mum gave us a drink to kind of like ease some of the pain and uh, we rushed off the hospital uh, not long after, vomiting in the back of the car, you know, diarrhea, sorry for the yeah. explicit uh, nature oh, dude, of it. We'll go everywhere, don't <laughs> worry about that. Mate, it's just crazy. And then pretty much what ended up happening was uh, they were so dehydrated from all the vomiting, mm. they couldn't find a vein in my entire small body. I was only two and a, a bit years old. Uh, so the doctors were struggling to find a vein to rehydrate me. If they couldn't rehydrate me, then it was touch and go. Wow. From there, they could you could basically your kidneys could collapse and you could be in renal failure or all other uh, myriad of other complications. So what ended up happening was, uh, since they couldn't find a vein, my parents um, they're, they're Christians. I'm Christian too. So they had the church yep. uh, pray for a miracle. And they ended up going over my small body hours later after we knew that the church was praying for her from, from my brother and I. And they ended up finding a, a small vein in between my big toe and, and my other toe. It was the size of a mustard seed, man. So it was really, really tiny. But that was all that they needed to, to put the fluids and to rehydrate my body. But it was still, even after that, like it's still touch and go because yeah. you can still vomit and, and chuck up and the vein could collapse, you name it, all these, all these things. But, um, yeah, I ended up surviving that. So that was my first brush with, with, I guess, nearly dying or mm. the possibility of, of dying. Um, and then, yeah, from, from that moment on, man, like growing up in the, the phantom household wasn't exactly the easiest thing. Cause my dad sometimes had to work two to three jobs just to put food on the table. And as I said, me going in and out of hospital all the time, Probably wasn't the best or yeah. the most ideal thing for my parents, but they they did whatever they could to raise me the right way. My grandparents helped. My grandfather was like my hero, man, my number one mm. like mentor and gave me so much of the life advice that I hold dear to my heart uh, today. And, you know, to be honest with you, man, like I, I wish that he was still here yeah. to see the growth, to see where I came from to where I am today because, man – like I say as well that what I do today is to make, I know he's already proud of me, yeah. but it's kind of like having that, that motivation or that inspiration behind you mm. to spur you on knowing that he is watching me and I want to make him even prouder yeah. of me with it, whatever I do. So yeah, um, through all the adversity, man, I know there's like different moments uh, that we can talk about, we can touch on, but yeah, it's just been a, a tremendous growth growth yeah. period. Yeah. And and that's the same thing. We, we have a very similar connection with like our, our grandfathers and I have the same thing. My grandfather passed six years ago before I had any of this success with business or I was able to, to completely like change my life. And, and I do think the same thing. I think, damn man, like I wish so bad, like he, he could be here and witness this because I know how happy it would make him and to be able to give him a hug and like he would just have so much joy from seeing from seeing like our growth, right? Mm. But at the same time, I know, and I know you know, they know already, yep. and 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 they're proud, and they can see it, and they can feel it, and we'll get to have that moment with them one day. It might not be for hopefully many, many, many years to come, but one day we will get to have that moment. But it's just like I know, man, that connection and being able to you know hug him one time and say, "Look what I've been able to build," is is incredible. You mentioned there, and I don't want to skip ahead too too much, but you mentioned the first of of, of many of I believe four near death experiences in, in your life. 
I want to go into them, but those first ones as a child going through in and out of hospital, what did that do to you as a person? Did that develop anything within you? What was that experience like? I think as a young kid, I was very aware like of what was going on. I was very much curious minded, very like, yeah, present with my surroundings. Um, so I think going through those sort of things at that age, yeah. I mean, it changes your perspective of life in just in general and, and how you see the world around you being confronted with death essentially, or, or just a lot of health issues. I think that for me kind of, it worked me up yeah. quite early on. And I think it just made me appreciate what I had. A lot more like I was never, I don't believe my parents can probably attest to this. I was never really an ungrateful kind of child because I saw in hospital kids younger than me that would be far worse than I was. And I tried to make them laugh. Like if I could make them smile or make them at least, you know, feel a little bit more better about the situation they're in, that would make me feel good. So those were some of the early lessons that I picked up growing up mm. um, and just, I guess, having this understanding of the fragility of life, like you've got to appreciate every single moment. And as a five-year-old, six-year-old, you can understand that because I understood it. Mm. Like it's not, it's not impossible for a young kid to understand. Kids are smart, man. They pick things up very, very quickly. They're very observant and that's what I am very observant and I just pick things up pretty quick whereas from my experience from watching other people's experiences so yeah man those were some of the the things that I picked up um growing up what you've had like an incredible life and I know a lot of people that would would have gone through the things you've gone through would would definitely question why me why does this keep happening to me but I just think the amount you've been able to go through and survive and overcome and and thrive after it's, it's a true testament to who you are as a person, but I'm sure you must think this. Why do you think you're here? Why are you going through all this? Like, what's your purpose? Do you, do you feel a connection to that? I do, man. And for many, many years, I had no idea what my purpose was. Like, I thought that my purpose was to be a filmmaker. So I placed everything that I did into who I was. So we need to start, I really believe this, and it worked me up only recently, man, like in the last couple of years. Have I realized this? We need to start distinguishing between I am versus I do. See, society will tell us quite often that what you do has everything to do with who you are. It doesn't. Like who are you when everything else that you've tried yeah. to achieve goes away from you? Yeah. What's left? So I realized quite painfully that what was left with me after everything else was gone, and I'll share what happened. So I was in real estate in 2019 and but before then, like I was just coasting through life, man. Like I, I ended up in a relationship in 2018, um, and then that also mixed with in November of 2018, I ended up contracting men uh, meningitis, which could have gone to meningococcal. That was like my my third brush with almost dying, mm. um, which is another crazy story. We can get into that if you yeah, want. Yeah. Um, but after that. I placed everything that I was, my identity into being with this girl. Yeah. Then film came along with that. So everything that I was doing, everything that I was, I am at that time where I thought I was, 
I placed into being with this girl. So come 2019 and the very start of 2019, I lost my dog of, of 11 years. We were really, really close. Being confronted with that level of death again, it, it flipped the switch for me. I wasn't able to grieve for a long period of time as much as I wanted to. I was miserable. And then the, one of the biggest catalysts was being thrown into the deep end of real estate straight away, having no idea what I was doing and being abused straight away. So I had a sink or swim. Mm. And then not long after that, literally a week after I started in real estate, the girl that I had placed everything, my whole identity into, she ended the relationship. And I crumbled, man. I was in a state of just disarray, utterly miserable. And it got to the point where I had no idea who I was anymore. Because I had, like I said, I placed everything that I did and I was, or I thought I was, into being with this girl. Now it's gone. Now what? Got no idea. So it was this, this whole compiling of all these events just happening not long after each other, for me to wake up one day and realize I didn't want to be here anymore. Mm. Like there was no point. If I couldn't be with this girl, if, if I was being abused at this job, if I couldn't have the people that I love around me anymore, then what was the point of me being here? So I selfishly chose one day in June of 2019 to end my life. That was my choice. Because I felt worthless. I felt like I didn't have a purpose. I felt lost, aimless. And so one day after work, and I decided after this happened, by the way, I decided to keep it a secret. No one else was going to know. It was going to be my my thing and no one else. So come that, that afternoon, I just chose that that was a day that I was going to end it all. And I chose the stretch of road that I was going to drive down. I chose the pole, the exact pole that I was going to hit. I knew the – I watch enough like crash car investigation videos to know that at 130, 140 kilometers an hour, the moment you hit that pole, you, you're probably not going to walk away from it. And that was my goal, not to walk away from the car wreck. So that afternoon I drove full – got to the stretch of road, sped up to 100 and 130 kilometers an hour, and I was heading directly towards – this pole at the end of the road. I was in the far right hand, far right hand side of the road, and I took my hands off the wheel. The, the car started veering off to the left, ready for the the car to hit, but it didn't hit. It didn't hit. I watched the steering wheel go from the left hand side of the road back to the right hand side of the road. I didn't even feel my foot come off the accelerator onto the brake. My car comes to a complete stop right there, dead smack, almost in the middle of the road. Cars are still going past me. Like, what's this guy doing? He just stopped in the middle, almost in the middle of the road, the right-hand lane. What's he doing? I broke down in that moment. I just cried. And in that moment, I, I was so far away from God as well. I, I didn't think he loved me. I didn't think that anything was going my way. I just cried out and I said, look, look Lord, I need you to give me purpose I need you to, to do a miracle in my life. I need you to give it meaning. And it wasn't like this instantaneous, my life changed. But I had this little sense of peace in my spirit, like it was going to be okay. Mm. And then I drove to where my grandparents are buried and just sat there for a while, just being in 
being in my grandparents' presence, like my grandfather, I don't know how I made it home that afternoon, but no one knew. Mm. Didn't tell my parents, kept it quiet for so long. But then it wasn't long after that that I realized what my purpose was. And it was me sitting in a, a, a job interview for a top recruitment company in Sydney, Australia. The starting package was amazing. I could have excelled and I knew I would have excelled. All I knew in that, in that moment was I needed a job because financially I was struggling. I made commitments that I needed to honor to my parents and other, you know, the bank, that sort of thing. And so here I was sitting across from this CEO of the entire company. And he asked me this one question. He goes, why do you want to be here? Why do you want to work here? And I immediately responded with, I want to help people. Sure, I could have helped people get a job and I would have been damn good at it too because that's exactly what I was doing in real estate. I was kind of like going through the motions a little bit. You know, I picked things up pretty quickly. I learned them through going through those adversities and those trials. So it would have just been like going on on like this repetitive process, man. I would have picked it up and just would have done it, but I wouldn't have been happy. I wouldn't have been fulfilled. And when I went home that afternoon, I said, there's got to be more to my life and life in general than just helping people get a job. And so when I went home, got down on my hands and knees and I just prayed. I said, Lord, I want you to show me. I want you to, to give me clear direction of where you want me to go. And not long after that, I turned down the job I went to work for uh, disabled people and then I started the Storybox podcast 2.0 and me starting the Storybox 2.0 and unboxing people's stories, the sheer desire in, in that room, I realized what my purpose was. It wasn't anything to do with what I did. That was separate. It had everything to do with who I was. I was enough already. I didn't have to do anything else. Me just being alive, my God-given purpose is to be here, to live, to love, to learn, to grow. That is life. That is the joy of life. That is fulfillment, man. Because if we weren't made to be stuck and to be stagnant, we weren't made for the ground, man. We were made for the skies, which I talk about in my book. That is a life fulfilled. Because if you don't grow, if you don't learn, then you're going to feel unfulfilled. And that's what happened to me. And when all the trials and all the craziness happens, you're going to crumble because that's what happened to me. So my purpose, I'll say, is um, to help others realize their worth and reach their full potential through the power of stories. It's the mission of the story box because that is part of who I am. So I'm taking who I am into what I do, not the other way around. Mm. That's my purpose, man. That's powerful, man. Um, you said something and I, I want to get your opinion, like not your opinion. You've gone through a lot and, and you've come out the other end and, and, and have been able to turn yourself around from that low point of sitting in that car after you, it, it just corrected itself and you're sitting on the side of the road. First, first of all, what are you thinking before you can co collect yourself and you, and you redrive over to, to visit you, where your grandparents are buried? What's that moment like? when you're sitting down in that moment of silence and calm that you spoke about? Take me back, man. Mm. I was in tears. 
was just a mess. I didn't know if I wanted to drive. I didn't know what was going to come next. And let me just say as well, like when you're in that state of sheer misery, depression, and you, you want to end your life, there's part of you that doesn't want to end your life too. So part of me was wrestling between should I just find another stretch of road and, and should I just like hit something else or what should I do? And when I, for, for whatever reason, man, I just cried out to God. I said, I need you. I didn't even know if he was going to hear me or not, but he did. And he gave me that, that because I was wrestling with myself. When I mentioned that sense of peace, he calmed that wrestling and he just gave me that sense of peace and, and comfort and he told me it's going to be okay. And I felt inside as well that it was going to be okay despite me trying to kill myself moments earlier, despite everything that was going on around me, all the negativity, all the, the misery, the pain, I put myself in that place of suffering for a long period of time too. I had a choice to get out of it, but I chose to stay stuck, to stay in the misery because that's what was going on around me. And so me choosing to drive to my grandparents' place, I just wanted to be in a place where I felt safe. That, that was a choice of out of love. Out of love. Mm. That's really what it was. I wanted to be in a place where I felt safe, secure, and loved like I once did. And though my grandparents weren't there physically, they were there in spirit. And as I sat there by my parents' grave, all the memories of my grandfather, my grandmother, everything, man, just came and gave me that even more sense of peace. It's like this guy putting a hand on your shoulder and saying, it's going to be all right, man. It's going to be okay. And what, what would your advice be to people that may be similar to yourself and haven't had the easiest life and are struggling to, to find their purpose and to find a reason to keep going in moments like that? My advice is we can be so good at complicating things because of the circumstances around us, those circumstances, we start to overthink things. And that is just part of our human nature, man. It is so difficult. I understand that. It's so difficult to think about all the good things in life, especially when you've got all the negative happening around you. It can be hard to see the good, but there is always good in spite of the bad. We just have that choice whether or not we want to see it. See, there's a difference between um, like that want and that need. You need it and you should want it at the same time because when you need it and you want it, you're in a power, more powerful position to help yourself out of the difficult situation. I needed to get out of that situation, that dark period, but I also had to want it. Mm. And for me to want it, I needed to make the choice. And that was a hard choice. It wasn't easy. And it's not going to be guaranteed to be easy, man. But that is the joy of life too. Because it means you're going to be learning more as well. You're going to be growing. And you don't – imagine – I just want to um, give people a clear picture here. Imagine a life where you weren't growing. Imagine a life where 
you just stayed still, stuck, not moving, didn't do anything. What kind of life is that? That's the kind of life that you will continue to live if you make the choice daily to stay there. I had to make the choice to get myself out of that position. And all it took was one step into the unknown. Just having the the faith or the courage, whatever it is, to take a step into the unknown. But once you take that step, then you'll start to see more light. Once you see more light, take another step and then another step. And don't keep, don't stop. Keep moving forward. That is what life is, man. The moment we we stop, we die. We cease to exist. Whether here physically, mentally, spiritually, we just cease to exist. And that's not what life is about. And that's the thing as well. You're so right, Jay. For anyone who's going through all these challenges, as we both know, as much as they can suck while you're in them, it's those challenges and those moments of struggle that give you the biggest moments of growth. And it's like that metaphor of the slingshot. Just before it gets the best, it's at its worst and then it launches forward. And to be able to develop the resilience, which is a massive theme of your life, resilience and and being able to continually, like what you say in your book, get back up after you've been knocked down. And when, when you first sent me that book, I know it's changed. I, I read one of the, was lucky enough to read one of the earlier drafts. Honestly, when, when you sent me that, you know what I thought it meant? I thought you were talking about how to invite all these people on your podcast and they reject you and just to keep on going. I didn't realize how much depth there was uh, underneath that. And that's why I think your story is your story. Not I know your, your purpose is to share other people's stories, but your story is so important because if you can fight through what you've been able to fight through and find clarity and purpose in that, then anyone can. Mm. And it's easy sometimes for, for me to say that on the podcast when I'm talking to some other person who, who potentially didn't have as many trials and tribulations or challenges growing up as you did. And they can say, look at this guy with like a, a successful business and a rather easy life from the outside. But coming from someone like yourself, and we've only just touched on a few of the things that you've been able to overcome and we'll get to more, for you to be able to find that and claw your way back out to this beautiful purpose and clarity for life than literally anybody else can. Mm. Anyone that's listening that is down, that is struggling, it's one thing for me to say it, but listen to Jay's story and what he's been able to overcome, and there's there's always a way. Let me tell you, man, that, and those people are listening or watching, that your story matters. Not because I say so, but because you should know so. That is the most important factor. Because I can tell you until you're blue, blue in the face that you matter. But you've got to know it internally, up here. You've got to know it in your spirit. Everything about you has got to know that you are enough right now. Whatever stage of life, whatever situation you are in, you are enough. You have a purpose just by being here, by being alive. Your purpose is to be alive and to live this life, whatever may come. Good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. It's just to live. I think we have skewed it so much. We've said that purpose is this, purpose is that, and it's confused so many people. They're thinking, oh, I've got to do this, oh, I've, got to, I've got to do that, or oh, I've got to be this. But you just being alive right now. Because life, when you think about it, that is the most precious and the most valuable thing on the face of the earth. No question about it. Because when I try to take away my life, selfishly, I didn't realize how precious it was until I went to that stage. 
And there are many people that are at that stage at the moment that might be listening to this and they might think, well, look at what Jay's been able to do. And, and mate, even though you have all these great wins and, and successes and, and what the, whatever the world thinks it is, every single day is a challenge. But it's, a, it's the best challenge when you know that you are enough and you're worth it because it means you don't stay stuck. You keep moving forward. The amount of times, man, that I continue to get beaten down, and but I don't stay down. I get back up. I spread my metaphorical wings and I keep on going. Yeah. I take off. Let's go. Let's go back to another period where, and I don't want this to be the story of beat up Jay. This isn't about sympathy for you. This is to show people what can happen when you persevere, mm. but you were, you were talking about continually being beaten down and, and bullied. I want to go back to childhood because you had quite a severe bullying experience or a couple of really significant bullying experiences when you were young. Can you talk to me about what a couple of those moments were, but then more importantly than that, what you learned from them moments and how you've been able to use those moments and fall back on those principles that you instilled with inside yourself for years and decades to come. So I was bullied in primary school and high school. Uh, so it made me, the bullying in primary school made me dread going to school every single day because when you're having to face up to a bully, someone that doesn't like the way you look or the way you act, then you just, you dread going. You you don't really understand at that age what depression is, mm -hmm. but there was like, I think it was a low level depression because of that misery and, and, but, um, when it came to high school, that was a different story altogether. Cause you start to understand things a little bit more. You're open to new worlds. And when you do understand what depression actually is, it changes you. So because of the bullying in primary school and, and thank God that that eventually subsided, then going into high school, being bullied again by another kid who didn't like me because I was different, he just had it out for me. And I probably put a lot of it on myself as well because I was a little bit of a class snitch in primary school and I kind of got out of that in high school. So I probably put that on myself a little bit. But in high school, this one kid just had it out for me. So he kept picking on me, calling me names. He kept hitting me, all that sort of stuff. And it eventually got to the point where I decided I wasn't getting help from the principal or the school. My mum just said, you know, turn the other cheek, do all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, right, that's not going to work. So this one day, man, I just decided to take matters into my own hands. And it was a small school. So pretty much all the kids that were there were at, the, the, at lunch, the playground and that sort of thing. So he decided that he wanted to come up to me and start bullying me in front of everyone else, you know, being the big shot. He was bigger than I was. I was a small kid and he goes to me, uh, oh, sorry, he, he starts hitting me and I go to him, stop it or else. And, and he says to me, or else what? You can't do anything. And I, I said, or else I'll, I'll hurt you. And then in front of the whole school, pretty much, I picked this kid up and did like a reverse slam in, into the ground. And I said, don't ever touch me again. Don't ever bully me again or something along those lines. And did he? He did. He kept, he did. He kept on bullying me. It didn't stop it. I thought it would, but it made me realize that violence never solved anything. Violence begets more violence because that person is now angry at the fact that he's been defeated by you. So he gets, he gets angry, he gets jealous, he gets frustrated, 
And then it just continues to spur it on even more. Let's look at wars, right? What what has violence ever ever solved? Nothing. So for me, I thought the violence was going to solve my issue, my bullying problem. It only escalated it. So as a result, that kid continued to bully me, but my perspective shifted in that moment. I realized that violence wasn't going to solve anything, so maybe this turn the other cheek attitude might actually work. Maybe trying to ignore what he's saying, to rise above it in a different way, maybe that would be more helpful than actually retaliating in with fists and all that because I tried it, didn't work. And lo and behold, eventually when I changed my mindset around how this kid was acting and behaving around me, and let me just say as well, this kid actually uh, destroyed my back. He jumped on me and I couldn't support the weight of, of, of him and it collapsed my, my 11th, 12th and 13th ribs. They all popped out in succession. And as a result, I... To this day, I have that pain and I'm constantly having to work on that pain. So it's a, it's a lifetime injury that I'm having to work on, but I don't hold any malice towards this kid. I don't um, regret anything at all. It happened for a reason. I changed my perspective that day and it's helped me throughout life that when I'm faced with bullies and I'm faced with a lot of bullies, man, over the course of my life, you name it. It's just I've got to react in love now because I look at Christ and his example. He was rejected, persecuted, you name it, whatever you want to believe. That was his story. But what did he do? He's the one that taught us to turn the other cheek because violence never solved anything, and that's what he wanted to show us. Instead, we should react in love. We should be kind because what does it do to them person? It jolts them even more. It makes them think. Well, why am I doing this? What? Because you think about it as well, hurt people hurt people. I think the question we should be asking to these people that are hurting other people is what's going on in that person's life? How can I help you? So my perspective towards them is now how can I help you? Sure, you've got those, those people in life, and I'm not naive to think this, uh, by the way. I know there are, there are bad people out there. But then again, it's up to me to have that perspective of how can I help you in such a way that makes you not hate or not try to hurt someone else because we don't need any more of that, man. We need more people that love, respect, and, and are kind because that can make a world, the world a much better and a much safer place. That's a world that I want to live in. And if you were face-to-face with, with this bully now, what do you think you would say to him as Jay the man that you've become? Give him a hug. Give him a hug. And I I apologize for slamming him into the ground because I'm sure that probably would have affected his pride and his ego and it, it made him embarrassed in front of everyone. So I'd apologize for that, give him a hug. But I can put something, I'm about to face something very, very soon that it's very personal to me and I want to share it because it kind of puts everything into perspective. I'm about to face someone that did something to me when I was six years old and the sexual abuse of that, like for me, having to face him face to face is a testament to see whether or not I have really forgiven him. 
or whether I'm still holding malice or anger, resentment and hate in my heart towards what he did. So the ultimate test for me would be in a couple of months' time when I do see him face-to-face would be do I shake his hand? Do I give him a hug? What do I do? Or do I go and lash out and try and punch him in the face and say, you took this away from me? I don't, I, I've said to my parents, I've said to everyone that knows about this, I've said to them that I don't hold any malice, I don't hate him, I have forgiven him. So the ultimate test would be when I see him. So I hope that I, I live up to all the things that I have, I've said. What, um, what led you to that decision to meet him? Well, it's kind of, we have to meet him, but part of me as well wanted to meet him and to, you know, just part of me wants to see the look on his face as well. But then again, another side of me says, look, you've got your life. I've got my life. It's whatever happened in the past is in the past. I don't resent you for it. In fact, it has probably helped me more than anything in life. What did that moment of trauma then do to you as a human? Because I know from reading your book, this happened quite early on, six years old, I believe. But you suppressed it. You buried this deep in your mind until you were a teenager before it started to come back out and start to become more forward and into your conscious mind. What was going on in your life when these flashbacks started to come? And once you realized what had actually happened as an adult, how did you then move forward and start? Obviously it's, I'm sure it's never finished, but start the healing journey from that moment. Yeah. The healing journey never stops. Like it's a daily progress so all the habits that I have in my life today are to keep those demons at bay and so that trauma I call it the traumatic days when that actually happened it's like that oh crap moment you don't fully as a six-year-old kid I didn't fully understand part of me did but the other part of me didn't fully understand it and when you when you go through life you have that trauma trauma happened to you, your brain and your body tries to protect yourself, you know, fight or flight mode. So I call it the traumatic days. I'm walking around and then at these different moments, because it wasn't really spoken about in the house either. Like it was done, it was settled and, and handled the way it was back then. And then you just go through life unbeknownst that this actually happened to you. And there'll be different points in my life, whether it was a kid, teenager, or even young adult, where I would remember like my dad getting angry and, and wanting to hit this kid. I couldn't figure out why. And because nothing was all pieced together. So this would be at, at different moments. I'd have dreams about it. I'd be in the car uh, as a teenager driving somewhere. And all of a sudden that, that this flashback would come in my mind, but the whole picture wasn't there. And then it all came to a crashing halt where that day's just was lifted and it all became clear. It was Father's Day, actually, 2020, I believe it was. Uh, we're sitting at, at the dinner table. My older brother was there too. And we're having this conversation. And 
for some reason, whatever reason, the conversation steered towards whatever happened back in the day. I think we just mentioned this guy's name and I asked the question. I said, what happened? What happened? And then my dad goes, he's the one that touched you. And then it all clicked. Like the light bulb finally switched on. The days had been lifted and from everything just happened. So sitting down uh, one afternoon, my my mum and his mum were in the other the kitchen preparing lunch. I'm sitting on this guy's ca- uh, on this guy's lap on the couch. We trusted him. He was like a a church friend, and I I trusted him. So I didn't think that anything bad was going to happen. Neither did his mum or my parents. And then I'm sitting there on his lap, and then he puts his hand down my pants and starts fondling my genitals and starts stroking it for a good 15 seconds. Take his hand out. And then he says to me, if you tell anyone, I'll hurt you. I laughed it off. The next day, I think it was, I told my mum. She dropped the vacuum, went to my dad who was in the other room. Then all hell broke loose after that, trying to figure out what happened. He admitted what he did. And so now as, as an adult, having that trauma in my past is what am I going to do in the present? That trauma doesn't define how I live my life today. It defined what happened back then. But right now, my life, my life is, it's okay. Like, like I said, I'm not in a bad spot with it. I have come to terms with that happened to me. It happened to me and probably for my benefit later on. I just didn't know it then. I want to ask you a question because I say this all the time, but this is on another level. And I think I would struggle to understand if in all honesty, if it happened to me, I always say you need to adopt the mindset of life. Life is happening for me, not to me. But how do you get to the point where you just said there is probably a benefit of it happening? How did you get to shift the perspective for something so dark? How did you overcome that and think, no, I'm not going to let this define me in a negative way. I'm going to, it's a part of my story. It's a part of who I am. I can't change that, but I'm going to make it as much of a positive thing, a very dark event, as much of a positive thing as I can. How did you get that mindset? Because I think I would struggle to do it. And there's no doubt hundreds, thousands of people who've gone through similar experiences and maybe haven't faced it like you have. I know that there are people out there who have gone through far worse than what I have. I mean, on the scale of the kind of sexual abuse that I experienced compare, I know we're not meant to compare traumas and compare experiences, but I know there are people out there that are struggling with the reality of, of their uh, trauma, whether it be sexual or, or whatever it is, because trauma sucks, man. Trauma, trauma hurts. Each and every one of us have traumas, whether it be physical, mental, emotional, um, or sexual in nature, whatever it is, we all go through these, oh, crap moments, you know, that, that jolt us. But for me, man, coming to that realization, whether it, when it was actually during one of my podcast episodes, it was speaking to a 94, she was 93 at the time, she's a 94-year-old Holocaust survivor. I remember opening up for the very first time that that actually that abuse happened to me 
And her response to me literally changed my life forever because what she said was, yes, that happened to you, but it doesn't define who you are today. Like that is just part of your story. It is part of your life. Now you've got the choice to move forward. It's like, yeah, she's right. Did you feel heard and understood like you never had before in that moment? A hundred percent. Like here is this lady that survived Auschwitz, the, the worst atrocities known to man. And yet she took the time as a 94-year-old to sit and listen to me share with her that I had been through a, a sexual abuse when I was six years old. And her response to me was, when I experienced it, my childhood ended. But now she is encouraged by the fact that I'm, I didn't even know I was doing this until she actually told me that I was using that pain and that trauma to help others by me sharing it. And as vulnerable and as hard as it actually is to get vulnerable to that level and, and share those things with people because you never know how it's going to, if it's how people are going to react, is it going to help them, whatever it is. As much as I, I, I honor and I cherish that moment with her because if she can go through the Holocaust, survive and have the perspective of I am exuberating joy now, life is meaningful because I'm alive, I'm happy, then what excuse have I got? Literally, what excuse have I got in my life? Yeah. i got none. It's, yeah, that I've, I've listened to that conversation and I, and I know that moment and it's, I can't even imagine what that would have felt like to be able to have that moment of comfort with someone. And it's like, I, to me, your moment seems incredibly traumatic and it is, but for you to be able to be with someone that could put that in perspective and who has overcome something, again, we don't want to compare traumas, but arguably the darkest thing to ever happen on this planet and still have that perspective. And I'm sure she's been showing this message for decades since that point and pass that on to you. And for you to be able to pass that on for other people is it's, it's horrible that you went through that, but it's a beautiful privilege you now have to be able to share that in a positive way. You also have other tools you use. Um, and there's so much great value in your book and I don't want to reveal everything, but one of the cool tools that you developed was the, the cap method or the cap tool. Are you able to summarize that about how you kind of approach these low moments and how to overcome when negative emotions are really present? Of course, man, I'm a visual learner. So I love to visualize things and I then turn that visualization into something that can help me. And I, I'm someone that exercises quite regularly. So when I was on my, one of my runs one morning, I was just thinking and, and meditating on, on my life and the things that I was going. And, and maybe I, I thought of this uh, analogy uh, or this metaphor really of a cap. So like a bottle cap. So when you put the bottle cap on and you tighten it. So I just imagined what if I put all the negative things, all the horrible and the terrible experiences in my life, what if I put that in inside this bottle and it was my choice whether or not I wanted to loosen the cap or take the cap off and allow these negative influences to control my life. Or I put the cap on, tighten it up and then seal it all those negative things away and I'll just allow the positive things to benefit my life. Sure, you're going to have negative things 
that are going to come in your life on a daily basis. That's just a guarantee of life. But I always have the choice whether or not I want to allow that negative to influence the rest of my life or influence the the level of tightness that that cap has on on my life, right? So I use the analogy of C stands for choice, A stands for action, uh, acceptance, sorry, and P stands for persistence. So I make the choice daily to accept whether or not I want the negative things in my life. And guess what? Every action that I take, I can persistently keep it there, keep all the negative there, or I can reverse engineer it and say, I can make the choice today to accept the positive back into my life, not the negative, because I want the positive more than the negative. And I'm persistently going to keep that cap, a metaphorical cap, tight on my life on the negative so that I can continue to move forward with grace, with humility, with the best possible optimism and and continue to live my life with purpose and prosperity, man. I love that. But it's what's also stood out to me is I love the way you explain that, but there's also an interesting contradiction in that because if you hear Cap, what you didn't do was keep those negative emotions and stories all to yourself. Yep. I'm sure the metaphorical un, 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 undoing that lid and letting that come out and share that allowed you to do that internally. If you were keeping all this pain and trauma and you were just trying to keep it down and not share it with anyone and didn't give that an avenue to come free from you, that cap method wouldn't arguably would not be able to work the way it does now that you've opened yourself up to that. And the funny thing is I've never been great at acronyms. Yeah. Here I am creating one Mm. for not just myself, but for other people to use as well, because anyone can use it. It's your choice whether or not you want to use it. There's, um, there's one more thing I want to, area I want to touch on before we go to like the highs of the journey of the, the, the story box podcast. Jade, Tell me about your experience with addiction and eating disorders because I really think it's a, it's a valuable perspective to share. Wow. Okay. Uh, so there's another thing that I still struggle with to this day. Um, so I, at 12 years old, I got addicted to pornography and that, See, porn is such a dangerous thing, but we accept it so much into, into society. Porn became my dangerous friend. I had no idea that it was dangerous for me. And it was my close companion. It was everything that I went to when things went wrong in my life. And even though it brought so much unhealthy fear, so much shame into my life, it brought forth all these other addictions too that I had no idea that it was doing to me. So I suffered with this addiction to porn because it was my choice to, to do it from 12 years old up until 20, 21 years old. But where that journey led me was in 2016, uh, because I was addicted, addicted to porn, I kind of got to that stage where I was just feeling numb to life and and to everything else. So I tried to stop watching it, but it was so difficult. And porn is one of those, those addictions that it stays with you. All those images, man, that you have in your mind, they will stay with you for the rest of your life. And 
that is the the craziest thing about it. So that cap method I was talking about, if I have one image come up, it is so easy for me to get tempted for that cap to be released. That is how easy it is because – and it, the triggers as well, man. There's so many of them. That's what porn does to you. It The un, un, unrealistic expectations too to perform, the way you look, the way you act, how you feel about yourself, all these things – and as, as a guy, as a man, I thought that if a girl would want me, she would want to sleep with me mm. if I had the rocking hot body, six-pack abs, everything, chiseled jawline, the hairdo, everything because that's what they taught you in porn because porn is an educational platform, but not many people know that. They think, oh, it's just an entertainment thing. I'm just going to go to it, going to numb myself out. But it rewires the neurological pathways in your brain to think certain things. So I I would think things about some of my friends and people that I met that I am too ashamed literally to ever repeat in public because it is so disgusting. And I'm disgusted at myself that I ever thought about that. But yes, it did happen. Maybe one day I might open up even more and, and share. But I'm always thinking, how is that going to help someone else by me sharing it, you know? But where that addiction ended up for me, I started CrossFit as a way to sort of get rid of this urge to want to jerk off uh, all the time because I had this bent up sexual energy and I wasn't having sex with any girls. I was a virgin. So for me, porn was like it for me. And I was nervous too. Like that's the thing that, rewired in my brain like I had no idea what sex was going to be like when I first had it I wanted it sure but I had no idea for me so this way of doing CrossFit was putting the, my body through struggle and through urge and the more I did it the more I I used that bent up sexual energy and I uh, channeled it into actually physical exercise the less I felt the urge to want to uh, watch porn and jerk off and, and do all that sort of stuff. I know I'm being very frank and, and, and blunt, but that's the reality of it. And it, what, what ended up happening was, yes, that addiction was subsiding, but I didn't know the other addiction that was taking place with exercise. I was using the addiction of exercise to combat another addiction. And I've spoken with um, Dr. Anna Lemke about this. And she's like, you're one of the very few people that uses another addiction to combat another addiction and exercise. People won't think that, that becomes an addiction, but it can, if you're not careful. And for me, learning, like going from one extreme to the other, that's what I do. I don't do anything in halves, man. I go to the extreme. So with exercise, I would just exercise for hours on end until, and I wouldn't eat properly either because I became caloric restrictive and I just put my body through so much stress and pain and I ended up hurting my shoulder one CrossFit session and financially I couldn't afford to remain at the gym so I left the gym but you know what exercising outside is free so I'll just run for hours on end so instead of me doing CrossFit I would run for two hours and it, it, I built myself up to running for a long extended period of time and I started to, my muscles started to just ease away. It, my body was eating it itself and I had no idea that I was doing it. I just get up every single morning, go for a two-hour run, 
Then I do a, a, a thousand push-ups a day. I did that for like uh, six months straight without fail every single day. We went on a family cruise in 2017 and I was still doing it on the, on the cruise in, in the, the small bedroom that I was sharing with my brother, doing it on the floor. He can, he can attest to this. Uh, he'd be asleep and just waking up and I'd be on the floor crunching out, out the numbers. I'd do them in, in, in um, sets of 100, just bang. And then I'd run. I'd run up 14 flights of stairs and then run for an hour and 50 minutes up on the top deck and then barely eat anything during the day. But then it all came crashing down, man, because my body couldn't take it. I started to go yellow. My parents started to notice I was becoming jaundice. So I was losing a lot of fat in my face. I didn't look healthy at all. I thought I was healthy, but I wasn't. But guess what? I was happy, in quotation marks, because I no longer had the urge to, to jerk off to porn. So I wasn't watching any porn, but this other addiction had taken its course, and I allowed it to. So... I was so stuck in my ways that nothing was going to change me except being placed flat on my back in hospital. So uh, it ended up happening. What ended up happening was uh, I was struggling to go to the toilet every single day. It was painful, cons- consistent diarrhea. I'd be on the toilet for like half an hour to an hour every single morning in excruciating pain. I had no idea what was going on was actually my bowel was blocked with fecal matter. So it was like this massive rock that wasn't going to go anywhere. And uh, so I was, en- I ended up in uh, Norwest hospital for a-, a period of four days. And what happens when you've got blocked drain, you got to unblock it. So all my dignity, everything that I held dear and close to my chest, just stripped away. I felt sorry for all the nurses. And I mean, it's quite explicit and, and, and vulgar. Some of the things that went on, during that four-day period. But you know what? It didn't change my mindset. I was in the bathroom and I was doing a 1,000 push-ups while with an IV drip still in my arm while having to go through these these ways to unblock my my bowel. Nothing was working and I was still – I didn't learn. Then I was sick and tired of being in hospital for the four days, so I'm like, I'm feeling better doctor discharged me and then a week later I'm back in hospital again my German shepherd that would pass away a couple of years later she ended up saving my life she wouldn't leave me alone uh, my my body was just attacking itself my kidneys were dehydrated everything was just compiling on itself all started from one addiction I ended up back in hospital a different hospital a sand hospital and the amazing thing was, uh, it was a, kind of like a five-star hotel room, man. Like it was amazing. I got the view of Sydney Harbour, got everything. But I ended up having uh, a gastroenterologist come and see me and he uh, he goes, Jared, I've got uh, 40-something years of experience. You're in the best capable hands. It's going to be all fine. <laughs> Pain wasn't wasn't done, man. Like it was – so, so painful on the scale. I've got a high pain threshold, but on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst, it was a, a, at a 15. It was bad, but you, I had to go through it. And a nurse actually on my last day after I'd gone through all the, the craziness to unblock my drain, we unblock my bowel, sorry, we kind of had a little bit of success. 
she says to me, you're in your 20s. You're young. You shouldn't be here. And she was right. I should not have been in hospital going through the things that I was going through because it was my choice of all the things that I did. I didn't listen to people that knew better than me. I didn't adhere to the advice of my mum, of other people that were saying to me, you're going too far, you're doing too much. I didn't listen because I thought I knew best. I thought that I was right. And as a result, I was in hospital. So I didn't really sleep much that night. I was just thinking and I ended up staying up uh, and watching the sunrise. And that's where I came up with my beat in the sun method in my life that I still use to this day. That if I can beat the sun, then no matter what comes my way during the day, I can beat that too because the sun is constant. It never changes. It's always rising every, without fail. So if I can rise up before the sun has even risen, something that is constant, then what's to stop me from beating something negative in my life? So all the things, all the habits that I do today are used to help combat the porn addiction. And I'm, I'm thankful and I'm, I'm proud that I no longer have that, that urge or that addiction to porn anymore. I've rewired back my, my brain, which I'm grateful for. That can happen. So don't think that it can't because it can. Living proof of that again, as well as I've gotten control over my addiction towards exercise and my my food uh, disorders. Let me just say as well that they never go away. They always remain there, like a a big ugly like pimple. You got to pop it sometimes, you know, but it doesn't stop it from coming back or another one coming back. You just have to be the better popper every single day. You see it, boom, get rid of it. I'm not, I don't know if that's a good way of describing it. You've got to it. release the pressure. You've got to release it, man. That is that is the way, like, and I'm very particular with those things because I know that if I don't do it, then I'm risking myself. Have you had any, I know you've had a lot of psychologists and scientists on your podcast. Have you had any psychologists that specialize in, like porn rehabilitation because I've told so many people and, and I don't understand the technical side of it. I just knew my experience. I stopped watching porn, I reckon like six, seven years ago now, not because I had a, a severe addiction to it. I just realized every other aspect of my life, physical performance, yep. sexual performance, clarity, concentration. I felt like a better human being. I had more energy was all better when I didn't watch porn. Yeah. I've told so many people to stop watching porn because I don't think well, their psychologists this do. Most people don't understand or can't comprehend the impact that porn has mm. on a brain, especially like the first time I watched porn, I, I, I think it was in primary school, man. Yeah. Your brain is so like, it's like Play-Doh. It's like, it's so easy to influence and we're putting these, I still don't understand. I just know that sort of messaging is not good. Even as an adult, if I was to ever, if I was to watch porn over the last few years or just even look at it, like I just don't feel good. It's not, it doesn't sit well. Yeah. Have you had any porn experts on your podcast or experts? What do they say about what it actually does to your brain? Cause you would know more about it than me. That I've had a few mm -hmm. and there's been some that are, they're more in line with saying that porn is good for you. So okay. I've had those conversations mm -hmm. 
And I'm always asking the question, yeah. so why is it good? Why does it, why do you advocate so much for it? But I, I've actually had someone who was in the industry on my show. He was one of the, the top performers in the industry for six years. And he tells me, he's like, if you can be in the industry and perform. Was this Rocco or something like that? What was his name? Yeah, Jason, Jason Broom. Jason yeah. Broom. Okay. Or Josh, Joshua Broom, Joshua sorry. Broom. sorry. I remember this episode. <laughs> yeah, it was um, such a powerful episode, man, because he was telling me, like I asked him the question, so why shouldn't people watch porn? And he goes, for the most part, and if this doesn't shock you, then I don't, I don't know what else will. But most of the people that you're watching on there have either committed suicide or they've got suicidal thoughts or they're depressed, or they're on drugs. A lot of them, they're just they're actors, man. But their life outside of being on the screen is utterly miserable. And if you can have a first glimpse, first-hand glimpse into that and get out of it, I think that shocked me as well. I wish I had that before because that may have, like, helped me out of the addiction. And like the new the neuroscientists that I've spoken to or the psychologists, the ones that know what they're talking about, there's a, there's an episode that I spoke, uh, there's two of them actually, um, Married Sex. Like that one was good because we also talked about the problem with porn um, for, for many adults and, and even some kids too. So the new neuro, neuroplasticity, right, like your brain is constantly changing over a period of time and what your what porn does is those neurological pathways that I, I spoke to you about, it rewires them. It detaches the old ones and, and rewires the other areas of the brain. So that pleasure and and pain, you become numb to a lot of things. So you don't you don't understand like sexual pain, sexual pleasure, it's different. It's changed. That performance level, your your hormones Everything is rewired. So your production of hormones changes too. There's a video that I watched uh, with a, a doctor actually talking about it. I'll probably have to get it for you. It's quite an old one. But he was he was talking about that very, very fact. He's like, your expectation going in to uh, having sex for the very first time, if you are, if all you've known for many years is watching porn, your your expectation is you can end up with premature ejaculation, you can't get an erection, you, uh, you you just don't have a desire at all, like all that can go numb or you have this bent up energy and you just don't know what to do at all. Like you just stand in there um, pretty much. So that is the repercussions of what porn can do and not many people know this. It's crazy. What's the argument for the psychologists that think porn is a good thing. What are they, what's, what was their angle with that? It gives you ideas. It gives you different ideas of how to interact with different sexual partners. And it's a weird argument because every single person that I've spoken to that has come off an addiction have said to me, Jay, I'm so much better. My sex life is 10 times better coming off of oh, it man, than I, being on it. I tell everyone like, if you stop watching porn, you're going to perform better sexually. Not Your libido is going to be high. You're actually going to want to do it. I don't like 
if you can just always, you, your brain knows whether you think, oh, it doesn't matter. Your brain subconsciously knows at any minute of any day, you can get out your phone and you can put on porn and you can get yourself off. Yeah. When your brain has that knowing in the back of its mind that it can just do this at any moment, it doesn't, it's, it's artificial. It doesn't need to go through these natural rising in testosterone and then these moments. And then when you are actually presented in that moment with, with, with the girl in that, in that moment, then your body doesn't know what to do. It doesn't need to. It's like when people take steroids and then their body doesn't produce enough testosterone that needs anymore because it doesn't need to. Yeah. It's the same thing. You're artificially giving your body all that it needs in that way. So it doesn't know how to turn on in those moments anymore. And I know like some people say, okay, but how do I, how would I, you know, to excuse my language, get myself off if I don't yeah. watch porn. I'm telling you like, man, if you just take like the month or however long it takes to break that cycle, once you get through it, you'll realize how much better life is when you don't. And that was for me, I didn't have an addiction to it, but it just, I realized my life was so much better without it. Yeah. And I've, I've told so many people and I will, like I'm so open. I tell all, all my friends, like, why do you, why would you do it? Anyway, um, enough with porn. I want to get, <laughs> I want to get into some of the, some more like detail about the podcast. And I, I want to ask you some questions about it, but the million dollar question I know everyone would want to ask. And, and it's something I know you get asked all the time. How do you go from interviewing your friends to celebrities and the biggest names on the planet? Uh, I'm blessed and fortunate, I guess. No, it, uh, I think it's, there's a lot more to it than that. And I think it's no one saw how hard I actually worked behind the scenes, how much failure, how much rejection I actually faced. But the level of persistence that I had to adopt in my life just so that I could get one person. Mm. And I guess there's like a, a strategy behind there too. Like one, one person gives you the next person and the next person relationship building. So you and I connected, I think it was 2021. I think 2020, like 2020, 2020 I think wow, it's man. been a while. That is, yeah, a long time, but we've become good friends ever since. And that was through, I think finding your, your Instagram DMing you or something and you saying yes. And that one yes led to another yes. So it's been this gradual progression of I've reached out to someone via email or via – it used to be just through uh, Instagram, man, just sending DMs and trying to figure out how in the world it's going to get their attention. Yeah. Because you can be lost in their spam folders and Instagram has changed all that so much that just sending a DM, unless you have a, a blue tick on you – you can't really get into their, their primary thing. You go into a spam folder. So it's like this, you got to be smart as well as creative, as well as fostering and building on, on those relationships. But also I think a, a large part of it was the fact that I was really blessed and fortunate. And I think people just liked speaking with me and I love speaking with them. So that genuine passion, that genuine curiosity is coming out and asking them a bunch of questions that they may not have been asked before. So, yeah, I guess that's really. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you that question um, just to see what you would say. But I know a lot of people would ask that question and think, oh, he's going to give me this silver bullet the way I'm going to book Tony <laughs> Robbins or Matthew McConaughey, whoever it be. But I know there's no silver bullet. It's hard work and persistence like anything else. And that's where all the lessons you've learned from all your hardships in in, in your personal life has been able to 
you know, be used in this like career, this purpose for you. And I'm sure all the struggles and rejections from this, which sure would have stung at times, is nothing compared to what you've gone through before. But it's just always looking for that way to win, always looking for a new way in. But balancing, because I know when you're interviewing the biggest names in the world, they have sched very tight schedules. You may have to book months ahead. They might not have a, a book to promote or anything. And there's a fine balance between being positively persistent and becoming like a burden on that person. How do you balance that? It's a great question. And by the way, I can give you Tony's people, like the email address, but that doesn't mean he's going to say yes <laughs> to you. No way. You've got to build that level of credibility. You've got to be, I know it's, it's difficult for me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You've got to be worth their time because these people are super busy. And I had no idea about this fact when I first started. Like, I just thought, you know what? I've got this podcast. I'm going to be like the next Lewis Howes from the School of Greatness or the next Joe Rogan. Everyone's going to want to speak to me because you know what? I've got a podcast, but guess what? Every other Joe, Joe Blow now has got a podcast too. So how am I going to be worth their time? So that's what it became. Then we had the whole pandemic. So that had to, had to navigate that. But it's, I guess there's, there's a fine line between being rude and going over and above. And then there's that other line where, okay, I've seen how hard, how much he's asked and how much he's working. He's not giving up. So I'll give him 30 minutes of my time. Those people, like you just got to gauge via emails and I'll ask questions because if you don't ask, as my grandfather used to say, you don't get, I would ask him the question, when would be the good, the best time for you, for me to reach back out to you and, and see if you have more time. And then if I got a response, then that would be they're interested still. If I didn't get a response, I'd wait a couple of months, reach out again, see if they would respond. And if they don't respond, they don't respond. It's okay. Move on to the next one. But it'd be that, that process of just constantly reaching out, constantly keeping up the connection. And most of the time, man, you're not connecting with the actual person themselves. You're connecting with a team member. And you, you're establishing the relationship with a team member first. They've got to vet you to see whether or not you're worth their high-profile person's time because they've got a schedule, got a list, they've got so many other podcasters that they would consider. And I'd be further down the list, man. Like my, my for example, I had to get Matthew McConaughey before I got Tony Robbins, yeah. which is crazy. I thought it'd be the other way around, but it wasn't. But – in saying that, I, I persisted so much so for that connection with, with Tony Robbins and the fact that we are still friends this day. We're still working together to this day and because she saw something in me. Number one, I didn't give up. Number two, I respected her and her clients. So she would pass on Ali, Ali Brook, I believe it is, and some other people too, Peter Malouk, who was a partner with Tony Robbins. So – all these people I connected with because of this one person giving me a chance, I respected and valued them. So she could see that Jay isn't full of crap. He's going to actually respect Tony and his time. He's going to have a good conversation with him. And so when that uh, opportunity comes, we're going to put him up the list. And that's what happened. So it's a, it's a long process, man, but you got to be in it for the long run. Like if you truly want this to work, because a lot of podcasters, they start out, 
they get the three months and they give up. Once you hit that three-month period and they realize how hard it is, and you know this now, how difficult it actually is to produce it, to reach out, to do all those things, it's like when the, the tough times come, what are you going to do? Are you going to crumble or are you going to continue going going forward, man? I just continue to go forward because I love it. There's so much more work and I've only – like learned this recently, there is so much work. If we're talking about the preparation before an interview, you don't just rock up and have the same 10 questions you ask every person. And, hey, Jay, okay, I'm going to ask Jay. No, I'm researching for hours and days beforehand. Then it's the edit, Joe and the team, editing it together, the podcast, the clips, the sound quality, everything. There's so much work in it. But one thing, and you are a, a living example of this, you have to be okay with, and this is what our generation so often isn't, Delayed gratification. Everyone wants the results right now. They expect the results right now. And if they don't get it, a lot of the time they give up and they say, why me? Mm. I just think you need to be persistent. But what's your, your, I wouldn't say call it your catchphrase. That (laughs) the one thing you said to me and it stuck with me, remain, what is it? Remain consistent. Be Be persistent to remain consistent are the things that you want. If you can't do it for the things that you want most, then when are you going to do it? Exactly. All right, I know you've had hundreds of conversations. I know that we spoke about one moment that, that stood out. And, and let's leave that there. I know that was probably the one that sits with your heart as potentially the most significant. Apart from that moment, is there a story or a piece of advice from a guest that stands out to you most? There's a lot. I know the big one for me is be kind because they're being kind to me. So why can't I be kind to other people? But kindness speaks volumes, man. Kindness is like a language in of itself. Like if I'm kind, if I do something for you, mate, you're going to feel great. It's just such a powerful motivating thing that a lot of people don't use for whatever reason. So I, I think kindness is the big one for me. Number two, authenticity. I touch on this a lot. I hate this saying with a passion. When people say fake it till you make it, no. <laughs> I, I can go on for ages with this, man, but I'll just say this simply. You cannot fake it until you make it because you are faking life. And the moment you start faking life and you start believing this fakeness, you're not authentic. You're not living true to yourself. I know people say there's like a degree and you've got to do it sometimes. No, I'd much rather be authentically true to myself and fail as hard and as as long as I need to if I know that I am 100% living fully within me than faking something for even a short period of time and allowing that little bit of fakeness to possibly take control of my life and make me feel miserable. There's a difference, and I think that's where people get confused. There's a difference between faking it until you make it and pushing yourself to step outside your comfort zones and grow. It might not be comfortable to who you are and the life you're living right now, but if you know that's part of your journey and your purpose, pushing yourself outside your comfort zones, that's when you're going to get the growth. But there's a difference between showing up and faking it and putting on this show that you know in your core, in your soul, in your heart isn't you 
And that's the distinction. So yeah. don't sit inside your comfort zones because this is me and this is what my life looks like today. Have that bigger vision, that clarity on, hey, this is where I am. This is who I am right now. But where do I want to be? What type of person do I want to become? What sort of skills and personal traits do I need to develop to achieve that? It's so important. Uh, and Jay, not only have you had 600 plus conversations, your, just your book recommendation list in your book is like 60 <laughs> books on it. And I know you must read more books than almost anyone I know. What would be your top three books if you could only recommend three books that someone that just about, I'll just leave it at that, your top three recommendations, what would they be? Oh, that's a hard one. I know it's hard for you who recommend Damn. so many. Um. So obviously because I'm a Christian, I'd, I'd recommend read the Bible and Number one for that is not just the wisdom and advice that it carries, but the stories. Like some of the stories you read in there, you're like, how in, did that happen? Like, what the heck? They're so, but they're real. I believe they're real at least. So number one would be the Bible. And number two, oh, Matthew McConaughey's book is like stellar favorite yeah. of mine. Honestly, it's so, so much joy and, and it's funny. And I mean... Every single page, I was laughing. It's the easiest book to like. If you don't oh, yeah. finish that book in one sitting, like it's you just can't stop. And it's not necessarily it's not edu education as in it's going to teach you something with a structure. It's just a beautiful journey and entertainment that you go on, but you learn from it at the same time. And your third, so it's a toss up between Stolen Focus, Johan Hari. I love all of Johan Hari's books. Shout out to Johan because he's awesome. Or it is The Proof is in the Plants by my mate Simon Hill. Okay, yeah. Just I'm not, I'm not vegan and I'm not advocating veganism. But what I will say is that book, if you do want to live a healthier life and you want the science behind a lot of the things, I would recommend that book. Say what was it called again? The the proof is in the plants. I should read. I've been vegetarian for almost three years. Um, You'd love I, it. I, I, I'd love it. Um, yeah, incredible. I can't wait to read that book. And I've had like, it's it's funny. I, this isn't obviously isn't like a, a religious or spiritual podcast. I've had a lot of people that have already come on that are, that are of faith, that are of Christians. And, and I'm not, and I say that openly, but it's so funny for me who I feel my connection and my spiritual connection with just the universe and energy. And I haven't put a label on that, but it's like the values systems and the things I believe are always so similar to, to the faith that you have. And I don't think whatever you want to call it, as long as you can connect with something and a higher purpose and just have that, I feel like it's an amazing thing. Um, Jay, yeah, look, I, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on that. Like the title of your life, man, is just the art of not giving up. And I think it's, it's a very inspirational journey. I was uh, amazed by how much you've been able to go through and overcome. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud and, Thanks, and grateful to know you. Like I said, I, I'm not religious, but go, knowing you and knowing your story, that clearly God has a plan for you because the amount you've came, came back from it is truly remarkable. So thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. I know there'll be so many people that will get so much value for it. And I know there was a lot of dark moments uh, along the way, but I think it was important to explore them and talk about them because if we, if we aren't able to share these sorts of things, then people will feel alone with the, these thoughts and these struggles. So I know it would have taken a bit of bravery to, to first start speaking about these things. So thank you for coming on and thank you for everyone that you've impacted with your story and your podcast over the years and will continue to do moving forward.
Thank you, my friend. You are you're a good friend. I appreciate you having me on. And look, just to finish up, I'm a, I don't believe that there's anything special about me. I believe that my story is is valuable just as much as someone else's is too. And I, I just want people to know that I'm an average everyday Aussie. I, I wear do you even clothes, sports gear all the time, wherever I am, doesn't matter because that's me living authentically who I am. So thank you, man, once again for allowing me to share. And and what's next for you and what's what's next for the Storybox podcast? What's the dream for that? What's the vision? Where are you taking this thing? Dream for the Storybox has always been to, you know, reach as many people as I possibly can, the millions, but I'm focusing on if it helps one person today, then I've fulfilled my purpose. And then I got the book coming out in September, September 27th. So an Aussie releasing his first book in the States, crazy. I'm nervous as heck. <laughs> um, but yeah, also excited at the same time, man, to see where where that book goes and, and who it helps. So I'm excited, man. I'll be definitely grabbing a few copies. I've read, I can't wait to see how much it's changed from the drafts that I read, but wow, we touched on some of the moments from it. I definitely recommend anyone who just wants to hear like a really inspiring story and some, not just that, some really important tips and tricks to manage things and overcome certain events in your life, as well as just hearing that crazy ride you've gone on with the podcast and the highs and the exciting times that have come, come with that. Um, finally, where, where can everyone find you on the podcast? Oh, this is called the Storybox Podcast. That's where I want to direct people to the most. I mean, yeah, go and listen to some of the incredible stories that are on there, man. Like, but hopefully you get inspired. Hopefully you get helped in some way, shape or form. And I hope that you love the stories. You're the man. I appreciate you, bro. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right, there we go. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, could you please do me a quick favor and hit the follow or subscribe button? I honestly appreciate it more than you know. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.